Community Bible Church on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. And as always, we welcome your questions. If you're joining us for the first time, this is a one hour program where people can call in and ask questions about the Bible as it relates to their personal ministry, their life, their home, or just some passage of scripture that they're struggling with and being challenged with. Again, the number locally is 525-1859. Our toll-free number for our internet listeners is 877. The call letters WAGP 980. When you call in, you can dictate your question or you can go on the air live. We're happy to receive it either way. Or you can text us or email us here directly into the studio. And that address is TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Rick, as always, it's great to be here, so let's go ahead and get started. Indeed, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Brogy. How are you today? Doing well, thank you. I have a question that comes from Isaiah chapter 7. In this chapter, God is dealing with King Ahaz and Judah as they're being attacked, and he sends the prophet Isaiah to speak with them and comfort them. Um, in verse 14, we have the famous uh, prophecy that talks about a son being born from a virgin and calling his name of Emmanuel. My question is, is this a short-term prophecy, as my Jewish friends would, would say? And if so, is this, uh, how is this fulfilled? Who was this Emmanuel and who was the virgin? Or is it a long-term prophecy, as William Christian uh, thought, believe, and applied to Jesus Christ, the Messiah? And how would you speak to a Jewish friend who might say that the word uh, virgin has been changed to fit this meaning, or could this possibly even be a double prophecy? And I'll hang up and listen. All right, it's a it's a great question. Let me see if I can respond. Uh, context is everything in understanding this passage of scripture, and so the prophet in Isaiah seven. Let me just turn there fast. He opens with these words. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah that Rezin, the king of Aram, or Syria, some translations render it, because uh, Aramia became Syria, ancient Aramia, and Pekah, the son of Hermalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. So just to set the context, uh, King Ahaz, who's noted here as uh, the son, he's technically the grandson, but since in Hebrew there's one word for son or grandson, not two different words, he's the grandson of King Uzziah, and we know that from the kings in the Chronicles. Most people know something of King Uzziah. He's on the throne in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah has that marvelous vision, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. But Ahaz, uh, he's a wicked king. Uh, we're told here he's the king of Judah. 
Remember, the kingdom split at one point. So there was a northern kingdom and there was a southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom was called Israel. And uh, there were 20 kings, depending on how you count them. Some would say 19, but there were two kings that reigned at the same time. But generally speaking, 20 kings in the northern kingdom, all wicked. Northern kingdoms called Ephraim, Israel, different terms. Southern kingdoms called the house of uh, David. It's called Judah after the larger of the two tribes. They also have 20 kings, eight that are righteous, 12 that are wicked. He's one of the wicked kings. And that's important to note. In fact, Second Kings 16 tells us that he was one who uh, worshipped the god Molech. And he offered actually his son into the fire. Now, the only thing that Ahaz did that was any good is he had a son by the name of Hezekiah and Hezekiah comes to the throne and he is a godly king. So he reigns in the southern kingdom, this guy Ahaz, and early in his reign, according to this first opening verse, there's the king Rezin of Aram or Syria and King Pekah, who's the king of the northern kingdom called Israel. And that's a little confusing to people sometimes, but if you can sort this out, it's really, really important in understanding the Bible. You'll always want to ask, especially when you're in the prophets, at what time in Israel's history is this person in ministry to? Is it during the time of uh, the United Kingdom, the first 120 years, where you have three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon? Uh, Or is it at a later time? When the kingdom is united, divided, uh, after, after Solomon leaves the throne and his son comes and the, it splits into two kingdoms. Initially, the whole 12 were called Israel. But then later, Israel is used in a more technical sense to refer to the 10 northern tribes and the two southern tribes is called Judah. So we're told specifically that this king, Pekah, is the king in the northern kingdom. And he gets together, they gang up together, uh, the king of Syria and King Pekah, and they want to come against King Ahaz of Judah. So it's somewhat of a civil war, but it's bringing in some outside allies. And uh, they had um, already on one occasion attacked Jerusalem and had done great damage, and now they're coming to uh, threaten again. Chronicles talks about the first war they had where uh, Pekah, the son of Ramalia, carried away 120,000 uh, of the Jewish people from the southern kingdom. Verse 2, it says, when it was reported to the house of David, that's the southern kingdom, that's another term for the two southern tribes, because Judah, uh, which is also the name for the southern kingdom, the larger of those two tribes is the tribe that David is from. So sometimes the southern kingdom is called the house of David. When it was reported to the house of David, saying the Arameans or the Syrians have camped in Ephraim. Ephraim is the capital of the northern kingdom, uh, Israel. Uh, and another term for sometimes just all 10 northern tribes, the Arameans have camped, camped in Ephraim. His heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Uh, today we'd say he, w- he was shaking in his boots. Uh, he was scared to death that they were going to come and clobber them and do great damage. So then we're told in verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shearshabub, and at the and at the end of the conduit of the upper pool and the highway to the fuller's field. So God gets real specific. Take your son, uh, names him here, Isaiah's son, and meet him in this particular place at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. I, I was stood there just a few weeks ago. Uh, the upper pool is uh, what we call the Gion Spring. 
and the Guion Spring uh, came through at least an Ahaz day on an aqueduct into the city where the people would have water. Uh, his son Hezekiah later took the Guion Spring and they did an underground tunnel. And if you go to uh, Israel, if you go to Jerusalem, you can walk through that underground tunnel. It's like walking through a stone cave that's about uh, 17 football fields long. And they followed kind of a natural groove in the rock. And it was a really strategic tunnel because it becomes a way in which you can bring water into the city and the enemies can't destroy it. And you need water to survive, especially when there's a siege against the city. So it gives them a specific place because he's talking about a real place, a fuller's field. That's a place where people go and do their laundry. And he said to them, uh, take care and be calm. Have no fear. And do not be fainthearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Ramaliah. So Isaiah says to Ahaz, just, just relax, don't fear. The way God views these two people are like smoldering firebrands, smoldering embers, uh, like a burned out cigarette butt. Uh, what they ha- are planning to do isn't going to come to anything. And then he says in verse 5, Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah, the southern kingdom, and terrorize it, and make for ourselves a breach in its walls, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Uh, that, that's what they're saying. Thus says the Lord, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Their, their plans aren't going to amount to anything. That's what God is saying through his prophet Isaiah. And then he gets even more specific because remember prophets of the Old Testament had to tell not only long-term prophecies, but short-term prophecies. There's 21 messianic prophecies in Isaiah, uh, prophecies that deal with the coming Christ. Uh, but how do you know uh, whether a man uh, gives a prophecy that, you know, is hundreds of years out. How do you know whether that prophet's word is reliable? The only way you could know is if he gave a short-term prophecy where it was fulfilled. And so he does. He says, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within 65 years, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. So God promised that the northern kingdom, called here Israel, would not be a people. That is to say that 10 northern tribes are going to be destroyed, and he gets very specific within 65 years. And of course, the, the northern kingdom suffers defeat in 722 B.C. The Assyrians come down, and uh, the prophecy is initially fulfilled. And then about 62 years uh, into this prophecy, another king comes down, and he uh, settles uh, foreigners into the land. And so they're basically considered at that point, uh, meaningless as a nation in terms of the northern kingdom. Um, So he's very specific. And then he gives a warning uh, about this promise that God is going to make. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. So he's saying, look, you, you need to respond in faith or you will not last. That's his responsibility and the responsibility of all who heard the prophecy because here the you is not singular, it's plural. If you, plural, will not believe, you, plural, meaning the whole house of David, the southern kingdom, surely shall not last. And indeed, um, uh, they they needed to respond in faith or, or, or God would do exactly what he said. So then the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Here's verse 10 of Isaiah 7 saying, ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord, your God. 
make it deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, there's no limits to it. Ask for anything that you want. As high as heaven or as deep as the grave, it doesn't matter. You can ask for anything that you want. So through Isaiah the prophet, God invites Ahaz to ask for a sign. And he commands him to ask for a sign um, so that he would be reminded that God would do what he promised. And so signs are used in different ways in the Bible. um, And God wants to make it clear that this sign will have no limit. But what does Ahaz do? He said, I will not ask nor will I test the Lord. So God gave him the opportunity. You can ask for anything right now, some kind of sign, and you'll get a specific sign in which I will assure you that what I am saying is true. Um, And Ahaz responds, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. That sounds real spiritual. Uh, It almost seems to say what Jesus said to the devil in Matthew 4, Luke 4, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Uh, The words are similar, but the, the heart sentiment are, you know, Um, miles apart. Uh, He doesn't ask for a sign because he knew that on the one hand, if God provided a sign, he'd be obligated to believe. And he didn't want God to confirm that he would protect Judah because he had already decided not to trust God, but he made his own plans. And you can read about those plans in the uh, parallel books that describe the time frame of Ahaz and the Kings and the Chronicles. So he wants to appear to have great faith in God. Oh, I'm not going to ask for a sign. I won't test the Lord. And the reason is because he already decided to make an alliance with Assyria so that he could protect himself uh, from these, uh, from these two Kings. In either case, um, you know, there are times when God asks us to test him. Test me now in this, saith the Lord, and see if I will not open for you the windows of heaven. And so when God invites us to test him, then it's a point of obedience. We are to do what God says. It's not testing the Lord, um, and it's not an evil thing. So then he said, here's what Isaiah says, thus saith the Lord, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of God. And indeed, that's what they were doing. Therefore, you're not going to ask for a sign. So God's going to give you a sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with a child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And again, the you here, the Lord himself will give you, not you singular Ahaz, but the Hebrew text reads you plural, the house of David. Behold, a virgin will be with a child and, and bear a son, and she shall be called Emmanuel. So God's very, very specific. And of course, Emmanuel is a Hebrew word that means God with us. And there's illustrations of that word in the Old Testament in Genesis and Judges, where it illustrates the meaning of the word. And the definite article is in the Hebrew text. It doesn't say, behold, a virgin will be with child. That smooths that out in English, but it says, behold, the virgin in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, so, He's very, very specific. He will bear a child and a virgin will do it. Now, this is, I think, the, the gut of your question. So let me start here first. Uh, but the, the, the setting is really important. So I took the time to give you that setting because how you understand the sign will help you to understand God's ways and how he works. Now, the Hebrew word that's used here for virgin is Alma. And uh, the word Alma in Hebrew uh, means a, a, a young woman of marriageable age who is a virgin. Uh, it's never once ever used to describe a married woman in the Old Testament. In fact, um, it's the only word in Hebrew 
that unequivocally signifies an unmarried woman. Now, in the Hebrew society, uh, a young unmarried woman of marriageable age would be considered a virgin. So some of the liberal scholars of ages past and those even today who want to deny the virgin birth, they will say, well, it just means a young woman of marriageable age and not necessarily a virgin. And so those who want to get around the virgin birth as being a historical truth and even a specific prophecy, they say, well, you Christians are reading into it. And some will even blame Matthew for reading into it uh, per the word he uses in Greek to describe uh, what what Isaiah says, because the word that uh, he uses when he quotes this Old Testament prophecy in Matthew chapter 1 is the Greek word parthenos, and the word parthenos, no scholar would debate it, atheist, agnostic, Christian, Jew, the word parthenos can only mean a virgin. But in Hebrew society, the word alma was always used also of a virgin. In fact, in every single instance in the Old Testament, Genesis 24, Exodus 2, Psalm 68, Proverbs 30, Song of Solomon, Chronicles, Psalm 46, other places. Every single time it is used, it is always used of a young maiden of marriageable, marriageable age who is a virgin. And of course, that would make total sense to us. Why? Because uh, if a young woman of marriageable age was not a virgin, what would happen to her in Israel? She'd be stoned to death. She wouldn't be alive to bear a son. Uh, Under the Old Testament law, she would be killed. Uh, Now, it is true, and some people will bring this up, that there's another word uh, for a virgin in Hebrew, Bethula. And some of your liberal scholars would say, well, if he meant literally a virgin then he would have used the word Bethula. No, not necessarily. Bethula, number one, is a synonym to Alma. They both mean virgin. And again, there's not a single case anywhere in the the Old Testament where the Hebrew word Alma refers to anything else but a virgin. But why didn't he use Bethula? Because the word Bethula, while it does mean a virgin, it does not necessarily mean of a young maiden. It could be a woman in her 30s rather than in her 18s. It could be of a woman in her 40s who is a virgin, but not a young maiden as such. And so in the prophecy under the providence and sovereignty of God, the Spirit of God puts in Isaiah's mouth the word Alma because he wants to underscore that this young maiden who is a virgin who is going to conceive is, is not going to be an older woman. And of course, I believe he's looking down the carters of time, seeing a young maiden by the name of Mary, who's going to carry the Messiah, not an older woman, but a young woman. And so, um, but what does it mean when it says a young maiden will conceive who is a virgin and be with child? Well, in the history of the church, there's been a number of different views. Uh, Liberal scholars will start with the premise that I've kind of underscored. Uh, But first, they start with some biases that supernatural things can't happen, and it's scientifically impossible for a virgin to conceive. And so since uh, they start with that natural bias, they come up with a natural interpretation. And so when they look at the Hebrew word Alma, they say it can only mean a young woman of, uh, of marriageable age, not necessarily a virgin, and that that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about a literal virgin conceiving. Their problem with that 
is nowhere in Hebrew literature can they point to a single example where the word Alma doesn't refer to a virgin who's young. Uh, So they write it off and um, they say that whoever this woman is, uh, she could not have become pregnant without the help of a male counterpart. A second view is that Isaiah 7 here, 14, is a boy of whom Isaiah wrote, um, who was conceived shortly after Isaiah spoke the message. And it's argued that a want, a young woman, a virgin, uh, got married and she married as a virgin. And then she had a relationship with a man and she gave birth uh, to a child. And then they take verse 15. He, he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. And they would say that before he was old enough to tell the difference between good and evil, that, that this Aram-Israel alliance would be destroyed. And so according to this second view, uh, the woman was a virgin when Isaiah speaks the prophecy, but was not when the boy was born because um, he was conceived by normal sexual relations. Uh, so that's a second view. A third view Uh, And by the way, I think that view, I should say, should be rejected for two reasons. First of all, because Isaiah's wife um, already has a child, according to verse 3, so she's not a virgin. And they often say this is a reference, at least the liberal scholars, to Isaiah's wife. And the second child born to Isaiah was certainly not named Emmanuel. Um, But let me go to the third view. The third view basically says that it's exclusively a messianic prophecy that the virgin that is in view is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it's argued uh, that in Isaiah 7 and verse 14, because the Hebrew text literally reads, the virgin is pregnant, or you could write it, the virgin will be pregnant, meaning that she's pregnant while she's a virgin. And so the Hebrew text is so crystal clear in meaning that if you take the word to refer to a virgin and not just a young maiden, Uh, as the liberals do, it's saying the virgin is pregnant while a virgin. And and that certainly fits what we read, of course, in Matthew's account, because when Matthew quotes this Isaiah prophecy from Isaiah 7, 14 and Matthew 1, 18, he underscores the fact that Joseph kept her a virgin until Jesus was born. And so proponents of this view would say that Isaiah is speaking not just to Ahaz, but to the house of David. And, uh, and the sign was given not just to this king, but to an entire kingly line. Now, the fourth position, I'll come back to that in just a second. It dismisses the liberal view, obviously. If you're a biblicist, you can't accept the natural view. But the second view that most biblicists do not take where they would say, well, this has nothing to do with Messiah. It's just a, a woman who's a virgin when she gets pregnant. Um, but, but they take, in essence, the second and third view, and they kind of bleed them together. And so they argue, first of all, that if the third position is true, that this refers only to the Lord Jesus, then how would this be a sign to Ahaz? And, um, and how does the birth of the Lord Jesus relate to the eating of curds and, and honey and, and uh, him uh, knowing evil before the alliance was broken? And so I think there's an easy answer to that. The proponents of the third view, and by the way, I take the third view. I don't see this as a double fulfillment. Now, I respect those who, who take the double fulfillment view for this reason. 
number one, there certainly are other cases in the Old Testament scriptures where you can have a prophecy that has a near and far fulfillment. Um, You have a near fulfillment in the Ark of Noah, which is, um, you know, a picture of Christ. It's a picture of the Trinity. There's one boat, three floors, one door, because there's only one way of salvation. And the day that it lands on the top of Mount Ararat is the very day that Jesus rises from the dead on the Jewish calendar. And so it, it is a picture, without a doubt, of Christ. And so it had a literal fulfillment of what God said he was going to do, uh, but it also had a future picture behind it. And there are pictures like that, types and illustrations in the Old Testament that point to Christ. I suppose if that's all we had, people could say that we're manipulating the scripture and we're trying to make it say what we want it to say, Um, when it doesn't really say that. And that's what some people accuse Matthew of doing. They're saying, well, this had nothing to do with with Messiah, and Matthew just chose to pull this verse out to build a case. Well, if if every prophecy uh, was like that, somebody might argue against it. But we have hundreds of prophecies that are not types, they're not pictures. Uh, They are specific in nature like he'll be born in Bethlehem, like he'd be pierced through for our iniquities, like there would be a rich man in his death. A number of prophecies, there was 21 messianic prophecies. This is the only picture type prophecy if you take it as a picture in all of Isaiah. All the rest are very specific, whether they are short-term prophecies, like this is all going to happen within 65 years and history records that that was the case, or whether it's a long-term prophecy. They're all very, very specific. They're not even pictures. But nonetheless, um, some would argue that this had a dual fulfillment, that there was a uh, woman who was a virgin who got pregnant through a man, and uh, it became assigned to Ahaz, and it, in one sense, pictured Mary. I have, um, you know, again, I I can respect that in the name Emmanuel, God with us. That's a theme that runs through Isaiah, that God was with Israel. And so they would argue that Jesus was literally with Israel, just like the servant motif that runs all the way through the book of Isaiah, if you've ever read it. Israel is God's servant. Israel's God's servant. But Israel is unfaithful. And so he moves from the motif of a nation being God's servant to an individual being God's servant. And so we speak of the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53 that is not speaking of a nation, but of an individual. And so they would argue, well, the motif is God is with Israel, God's with Israel, I, I, the, the nation, really, the, the southern kingdom, Judah. But, but because of their unfaithfulness, now um, God is going to be just with a specific individual. Again, um, you know, I respect that. I don't see that that is what is in view. What I see is there is a single prophecy here that a virgin and the way the Hebrew text reads, you, you could not apply it in Ahaz's day unless you manipulate the text. A virgin, while she is a virgin, is pregnant with a baby. And so that eliminates any possibility for a near fulfillment in Ahaz's day because there is never ever in the history of the world one like the Lord Jesus who had a supernatural conception where God the Holy Spirit came over the womb. And of course, the prophet has already said a baby is going to be born in Isaiah 6 and the baby or excuse me in Isaiah 9 and the baby's name is going to be God with us. 
So he's already speaking. He's going to elucidate on this prophecy a little bit later and two chapters later in, in chapter nine, a baby's coming and this is no normal baby. Uh, the, his name, the baby's name is going to be called wonderful counselor, mighty God. And that's why uh, Orthodox Jews to this day believe that Messiah will not simply just be some great man and some wonderful leader, but that he will be God in human flesh, that a baby is going to be born and the baby's name will be God with us. And so you can see how God's pulling the pieces together. Well, the objection to this view that I take is they say, well, where's this sign to Ahaz? Well, Ahaz had the opportunity to ask for anything, anything he could think of in heaven above or earth below. But he refused it in some false piosity, piosity that I, I don't need a sign. I don't want to test God. And that's because he already had his own plan. He didn't want to believe God. And so God didn't give him that kind of sign with a near fulfillment. God gave him, and not just him, because it's in the plural, he gave the whole house of David a sign. But understand, many times in Scripture, signs are given with no real necessary um, insight to the person to whom it's given. And that's what Jesus would argue when he quotes Isaiah the prophet in John the 12th chapter, when um, it it says, uh, he, he gives them an admonition in John 12, he says, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light that you might become sons of light. And though he had performed so many signs, yet they were not believing in him. And he says, this is a fulfillment of the word of Isaiah, the prophet who said, Lord, who's believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. And so for this cause, God blinds their eyes, he hardens their heart, and so forth. So God, and he quotes again, the prophet Isaiah. So God gives Isaiah a man with a hard heart, a man who sacrificed his son to Molech. He gives him a sign, but a sign he would not understand, because it's a sign that is going to come centuries later, uh, because this man is not one who's believing in the coming Messiah. This is a man who totally believes in himself, who has rejected the one true God of Israel, and a man who uh, embraces uh, in his unbelief the God of Molech. So God gives him and treats him accordingly, and that's consistent with Scripture. Light rejected brings darkness. So God is not going to bow down to this rebel and satisfy him at this point. He gives him one final choice. It's, it's the patience of God pleading, ask for a sign, anything in heaven above or earth below, as high as the heavens or as deep as the grave. And he says, I won't test the Lord God. And uh, it's because he's a rebel. And then God stops all revelation to him. And the sign that he would receive, like the Jewish people in Christ's day who were given miracle after miracle, sign after sign, they did not understand and perceive the meaning of it. And this man would not perceive the meaning of it, nor the prophecy to follow that a baby is going to be born to us and the child's name will be called mighty God because he is confirmed at this point in his unbelief. Anyway, um, I took a lot of time on it, but it's an important question. Let's go to the next one. We have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Yes. Um, I think it was a couple weeks ago, maybe close to a month ago, I heard you on the Bible line. You were speaking on uh, the beheadings uh, by ISIS. Uh, I think this is re- re- referring to the last days. Uh, you 
said something to the effect of, uh, we used to look at beheadings as something that would happen in the tribulation, and now it's happening uh, in today's times. Uh, with that, with that, and uh, this, you know, inter- internal virus with the children, Ebola, and now with the Supreme Court's decision yesterday regarding same-sex marriage. Uh, I know you've spoken, you know, obviously uh, the end times uh, or last days began when Christ ascended, uh, but you and others have said that you believe we are in the last of the last days. With these things happening, do you, do you think it's, uh, and I know that, you know, he, he could come in a thousand years or he could come while we're talking right now, but do you think with with these things happening right now, is it, do you think it's speeding it up? Well, I wouldn't say it's speeding it up as such, but I would say that um, it's a reminder to us that, you know, the the time is getting close. And the comment I had made uh, in reference to uh, beheading is that uh, even 50 years ago, when people would read this text, I mean, Christians obviously believed that they knew it was true, but it just seemed like, you know, the, the liberals would say, well, look, we're in the 21st century. People don't cut people's heads off anymore. Maybe they did that during the time of, you know, the French guillotine, and maybe they did that at other times in human history, but people just don't do that anymore. And so it seems inconceivable that people who choose Christ over Antichrist, we call them tribulation saints, uh, during the time of that seven-year period, that it just doesn't make sense to them that beheadings would take place. And yet John says in Revelation, for instance, chapter 20, and I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast, the antichrist or his image. Um, so what oh, the, the simple point I was making is, is that um, this brutality that we're even seeing in our day in the 21st century, that is just inconceivable. It makes people shiver. Uh, It gave David Cameron this time an opportunity to make a defense before the parliament and says this is just beyond belief. This is beyond, you know, normal human dealings and any kind of rules of of war. And if we don't step up as a British people and do something, then, you know, we're less than human. Um, And yet we're seeing this happen. And this is indeed a, a sign of the last days. Because when Paul says to Timothy in his last will and testament, he says, realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control. And then the next word in the list is brutal. Uh, They're religious. And indeed, all these guys are religious. They have a form of godliness, but they've denied its power. So we're seeing these things lived out before us. Do I think Ebola as such is a, is a plague of the revelation? No. Uh, the plagues of the revelation are entirely different, and they will not unfold until that seven-year period when the Antichrist has come to rule. Um, but, you know, certainly there are problems that, you know, we have and experience because we live in a fallen world, and God wants to use those fallen Uh, tragedies that come to us as a means of repentance. Jesus taught that. He said, you know, you you, you talk about this tower that fell down and killed these folks. And and I remind you that unless you repent, you 
likewise will perish. Or the uh, thing that Pilate pulled off, I remind you that unless you repent, you likewise will perish. And so God reminds us in Scripture that when natural tragedies come, they should be reminders to us to get ready to prepare ourselves for having to make sure our heart is right with God. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. We have another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Um, I have to go back to a question about Isaiah. I was just curious, and I didn't get to hear your first answer. I understand it went a long ways. I had to leave. But Isaiah, Ezra, and Nehemiah and Daniel, all being contemporaries, did they interact with each other? I know they had read some of their writings, but uh, I'll hang up and just curious on how their interaction with each other was at that time during the captivity period. Well, Isaiah's ministry is prior to the captivity. So Isaiah is ministering largely to the southern kingdom, but not exclusively also addresses the northern kingdom. And so even in this text, there's a warning here. And anyone who was from the northern kingdom who heard of it or got wind of it uh, learned of their coming defeat. So uh, Daniel, uh, he lives, uh, he's what we call an exilic prophet. So you have pre-exilic prophets who live before the exile. And so even the northern kingdom had not yet been carried away by the Assyrians. That's going to happen shortly after in 722 B.C., when they're going to be carried away about 13 years um, after um, uh, Isaiah initially makes this prophecy. Um, Nonetheless, uh, it's all within 65 years and their destruction of a nation, other events unfold that just lead to the Northern kingdom's dissolution. Uh, Some years later, uh, the Southern kingdom will be carried away. The Babylonians will overthrow the Assyrians and they, they will come down and destroy Judah. So as you read the pre-exilic prophets, you want to ask, who is their message to? Is it to the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom, both? Um, and at what time frame? So you have pre-exilic prophets, then you have what you call exilic prophets. And exilic prophets are those who minister during the time of the exile. And there's only two. There's Daniel and Ezekiel. And then you have what we would call post-exilic prophets. And those are the prophets who come after the exile uh, that are in ministry to those who who, who return. So um, Ezra and Daniel never really communicated with um, with Isaiah. Uh, they, they live in two different time frames. Anyway, good question. Let's, let's go to the next one. Okay, and we want to repeat that if you uh, missed any of the um, answers earlier, that you can always go to wagp.net and just click on the Bible Line Archives, and there you will hear uh, the message or the program repeated. Um, we have a, another caller, live caller, standing by, so let's get to them. Uh, don't forget, you are listening to The Bible Line, and if you have a question, you can give us a call at 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or go ahead and email us at tbl, as in The Bible Line, at wagp.net. And we've got that uh, caller. We're calling them back. And let's see if they are yet ready there. Uh, There we go. Okay, they're not picking up. So we're going to go to um, Jamie from Washington State who writes that she was listening to a great message from Dr. Stanley Toussaint about the meaning of the word kingdom. Actually, the two meanings, the greater overall meaning of all that exists is God and also the more particular meaning, which refers to the actual kingdom 
God gave, took away, and promised again in the future to Israel. He, uh, this uh, Jamie, had never heard of Doctor Toussaint, but since uh, he taught at DTS, he was wondering if you knew him and what your thoughts were about him. I yeah. have bad memories of Doctor yeah. Toussaint, as you may recall. <laughs> yes, I do. I do. Yeah, Doctor Toussaint. He's a great man of God. Um, he loves Christ and. He's now in his early 80s, and uh, I did have him for several courses at Dallas Theological Seminary, and you're referencing the uh, the fact that God is overall. He is on his throne. He has his kingdom now, but there's a literal future kingdom uh, that Dr. Chusain understood because the Old Testament prophets spoke of it, as well as uh, the New Testament, like Revelation, when Messiah comes back, when Christ comes back, he'll rule and reign for a thousand years, literally upon the earth. So Dr. Toussaint is a great Bible expositor. He was the head of the Department of Bible Exposition when I was at Dallas, and I was in the Department of Bible Exposition. That was the focus of my major in my in my four-year uh, master's program that I went through there at, at Dallas. Uh, I, I admire him greatly. He's actually preached in my pulpit and did a, a prophecy conference for us a number of years ago. Rick says he has bad memories because he loves to fish, and so we took him out deep, deep sea fishing. And uh, just about everybody in the boat got sick, but Dr. Toussaint had a large time and uh, caught a huge shark that day and had, had a lot of fun. And But in God's providence, we went because the uh, associate captain on that boat ended up coming to know Christ as his Savior and He's been a member of our church for the last 20 years or so. So anyway, uh, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Danny would like to know, are Catholics Christians? Many say yes, many say no. What do you think? Some are, some aren't. Uh, It just depends. It's like asking our Baptist Christians or our Presbyterians Christians. Some are, some aren't. Uh, Now, usually... Uh, when we ask of maybe a group like our Jehovah's Witness Christians, we just say no. Or our Mormons Christians, we would just say no. But there are Roman Catholics who are born again, who have received Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Uh, usually not because of the church, but in spite of the church. God's sovereign. God loves people. He wishes that none should perish, but all should come to repentance and And there are many Roman Catholics who certainly have uh, found the gospel outside of the Roman Catholic Church in evangelical Bible-believing denominations or non-denominational churches. Uh, Then there are Roman Catholics who listen to me, some who are listening to me right now on the radio. And they are um, born-again Christians, and they're studying the Bible with us. The reason sometimes people say, well, they're not Catholics is because and excuse me, that they're not Christians is because there is a lot of erring Roman Catholic doctrine. But let me just remind you, you can uh, believe in a lot of wrong things and still go to heaven. You could believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin, not just a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus, but that she never had normal relationships with her husband. Now, the New Testament teaches otherwise. The Latin Vulgate version, unlike the Greek, you can manipulate it and get around it, but you cannot in the Greek New Testament. She had normal relationships, uh, a relationship with her her husband Joseph and had other children, some of whom are named specifically in the New Testament. Um, So you could believe wrong on that and still go to heaven. You could believe the Pope is God's single representative man, so to speak, the one that came through the line of Peter, uh, as they argue. You could believe that and still go to heaven. You could believe in the real presence, transubstantiation, and still go to heaven. There's a lot of things you can be wrong on 
and still go to heaven. But you cannot be wrong on salvation by grace alone through faith alone, because that's what the Bible specifically teaches. And the Roman Catholic Church does not ascribe to that. They teach a faith plus works righteousness. So doctrinally, in terms of their way of salvation, we would say, no, they're not Christians. Uh, But in spite of their, but you see today, more and more Catholics, they don't even know what Catholic doctrine is and what what Catholics actually teach. And so they, um, you know, they think, oh, yeah, I can, you know, that's, I guess that's what we believe. And they don't know what they believe, so many of them. Um, And so, um, again, God's big. He loves people. And somebody may turn on a Billy Graham broadcast or uh, listen to some radio broadcast or be invited to some Bible study in some home and they get saved. And your first goal is to get them into the kingdom of God. And once you get them into the kingdom and they start growing and they see a lot of the inconsistencies, not to mention most people who are born again, they just want more. Uh, they, they're hungry. They're hungry for the word of God. And that's, that need is just not going to be met in the Roman church, because the whole focus of the worship service is not the proclamation of the word. It's the mass. It's what they call the unbloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's the communion table as they define it. It's not the preaching and the proclamation of the word, which I believe is the pattern that we should follow that is outlined and underscored and emphasized in the pastoral epistles of the New Testament. So most Roman Catholics, once they do get saved, they get hungry Newborn babies are hungry, and they usually want more, and they end up going to a Bible-believing church. And then when they realize actually what their church taught, some of them are just appalled and amazed. So anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Our next uh, question was dictated a few minutes ago. How important is it for a pastor to hold to a young earth view of creation in Genesis? And what if a pastor holds to creation but with the old earth theory? Also, this listener was wondering about your opinion of Answers in Genesis. Well, Answers in Genesis is a great ministry. Um, I've written some articles for them in, their, um, in some of their, their books. Um, they've put out some new series on Christian apologetics, and I have uh, two articles, one on how to prove the Bible is true, how do we know the Bible is the only book God wrote, and I also wrote a second chapter in one of their volumes on the uh, on the Reformation. Uh, what is the significant of significance of the Protestant Reformation? So I wouldn't write for them if I didn't think they were a good ministry, nor would I invite them to our church. And they are coming to our church. And if you go to uh, communitybiblechurch.us, you can get all the details. Ken Ham himself will be coming and doing an Answers in Genesis conference here at Community Bible Church. And it's going to be a great conference. Um, you know, there are Christians, they may be well-meaning, but they're wrong, who believe in an old earth rather than a young earth. And this is not a, a sub-issue. This is an important issue. You don't manipulate the scriptures to make it fit science or what you think science says. You let the scriptures speak for themselves. And no one could come up with an old earth just reading the scriptures as they're plainly unfolded by God. There's no gaps between the days. There's no huge gap between Genesis uh, 1-2 and Genesis 1-3. The days are not millions of years long. Um, The earth is created in six 24-hour days. And just so we would not miss that, 
God plainly said in Exodus 20 when he gives the Decalogue through Moses and he gives the rationale why one in seven, why the Sabbath day should be honored by the Jewish people. He said, because in six days, God created the earth and on the seventh day he rested. And so he said, you are to work six days, six literal 24 hour days. And on the seventh day, the seventh 24 hour day, you are to have a day of rest and spiritual refreshment. That's what God taught. And so you really have to manipulate the scriptures and no one just reading Genesis 1 and 2 would come up with an old earth series uh, time frame. Certainly when God created the world, he made it with the appearance of age. The trees in the garden were not saplings. They were full fruit bearing trees. Adam and Eve were not infants that God had to, you know, raise up and then wean. They, they were adults. Um, so when God created the world, he made it with the appearance of age, but it's not millions of years old. The ideas, the idea of millions and billions of years does not come from the Bible. It comes from evolution because that's what they need to prove their so-called theory. They need billions of years to make it happen because no one can see in recorded history, the kinds of changes that they're saying. We only have 6,000 years of recorded history, period. We don't, ha- we don't have history that goes back 20,000 years. We don't have a civilization that goes back 30,000 years. We have 6,000 years of recorded history. That's the time frame of the scripture. And again, that's not by accident. But they, the evolutionists and the theistic evolutionists, they have death before uh, sin enters into the world. And God's very clear that death does not come into the world, but through sin. It's because of sin that death enters into the world. There were not, you know, millions and millions of years of animals dying and evolving. uh, And eventually they popped out as a man or evolved into a man. No, 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 no. Death is a result of the fall. There was no death prior to the fall. So um, I don't respect those Christians who hold it. I may love them as a brother in Christ, but I don't respect their exegesis. They're, They're yielding to the world to be men pleasers rather than to say what God has said. That's all they are, is they're men pleasers. And I don't want to please men. I I want to please God, and I want to represent his word well. And this is not some hyper-fundamentalist, you know, ignorant position. Um, This is the position that nearly 2,000 years of church history ascribed to. Calvin and Luther and Melanchthon and Swingley and all the reformers, Augustine and Chrysostom in the fourth century and the church, they weren't a bunch of ignoramuses. They were incredibly bright men, brighter than a lot of folks you meet today. We live in a day of ignorance. We're sloppy, spongy brains are everywhere. Uh, None of these men believed in this so-called old earth theory. They took the scriptures for what they plainly said, and that's what I'm going to do as well. Let's go to the next one, Rick. I think we've got time for one last one. Um, This listener would like to know, why did God want to kill Moses on his way to Egypt? His wife intervened and circumcised her son, saving him. Exodus 4, 24 through 26. If God sent him, why did this come about? Now, it came about at the lodging place in the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him, Moses, that is, to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. 
So Moses had failed to circumcise one of his two sons. We know from uh, Exodus 18, he had two, two sons, Gershon and Eleazar. Uh, perhaps because uh, Zipporah was a non-Israelite. She didn't grow up with circumcision. Maybe her, But she was a believer in, in the Lord God. Maybe her, her background flavored her thinking she didn't like it. She didn't, you know, she couldn't stand it. Or, may, or maybe just the heart of a mother, you know, who watches her little boy being circumcised that, oh, it's so painful for him and, you know, and, and they can't embrace it. For whatever reason, we're not told uh, but during that 40 years in Midian, Moses failed to obey God in this area. And so Zipporah, um, you know, as an act of redemption, so to speak, by which the boy um, would be circumcised, um, through her act of obedience, it stayed the wrath of God on Moses' life. And so in that sense, he is a new bridegroom. Um, so this is a point of confrontation in Moses' life and very often in the life of any leader. Um, God will call the leader to lay aside some area of compromise before they can go further. And this was a point of confrontation in Moses's life. And he had to decide and, uh, his wife understood the seriousness and she did and God honored it. Good question. I, I think, think maybe we do have time for one more. All right, more. go ahead. Squeeze uh, in a caller more. just called and would like to know whether a born again believer should call themselves a sinner. If Jesus has already forgiven us our sin, does a believer still sin? Of course we still sin. The one who says he has no sin is a liar. Uh, and the truth is not in him. James says we all stumble in many ways. So Christians sin. But, of course, when you think of yourself, and some Christians get really, you know, picky about this, and they should they say you should never call yourself a sinner, just a saint. Well, certainly you should uh, think of yourself out of your new image in Christ Jesus, that you are a saint if you've received the Lord as your Savior. He's declared you righteous. You have the righteousness of God in Christ. But that doesn't deny or dismiss the fact that we still sin. And Paul describes that struggle as a saint himself in Romans, the seventh chapter. He describes some of the sins of even the apostles. He spoke of in Galatians 2 of Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and the apostle Peter, who was carried away in their hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is sin. So, um, yes, we're sinners, and we need to have a, a spirit that we are sinners who've been saved by grace. And if we don't communicate that spirit, then we do damage to the gospel. And we come across in a, with a false piosity uh, that we shouldn't display towards an unbelieving world. We, we, we want to uh, reach out and show them the love of Christ. Sure, we have a new commitment as believers to turn from sin in our daily lives and to live holy. That's a mark of conversion. But we still are sinners, and we're still a work in progress. We're out of time for today. Appreciated the questions that came in. A lot of questions we didn't get to, but God willing, there's always another Bible line if the church is not raptured. Beginning tomorrow night, a brand new series on how to manage your money God's way at Community Bible Church. Go to communitybiblechurch.us for details. Thank you, and have a good day. 